apparently, like, the most original, um, tran- like, transcripts of, like, the Hebrew and the Greek that are, like, from the third century that, that have survived are locked in the Vatican and nobody can see them. <gasps> what? Yeah. No. Yes. And they also, oh my gosh, now we're getting in the weeds, burned translations. Don't you say, wait a minute, what? They burned. Translations? Not like, transcripts. Not like, they burned transcripts. No. Uh-huh. Yeah. Luann, um, don't say this to me. This is like <laughs> some uh, Dan Brown. This is like detective stuff. Yeah. Uh, I learned in one of my recent classes that there are, uh, like, papyrus or whatever it's called. Am I saying Papyri- that right? Yeah. Um, papyrus, whatever. Papyrus, whatever. Uh, that is the most original that has mm-hmm. survived. And it's locked yeah. in the Vatican and only Catholic translators can have access. And do you think that we could crowdfund, like, do a Kickstarter <laughs> for the two of us to go over to the Catholics Vatican? If there's any Catholics listen to this podcast, in. we love you. Welcome aboard, Stowaways, to this episode of Seminary Stowaways, the podcast that makes the lively discussion of the seminary classroom accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Hannah Connor, and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Luann Riley. Today, we're talking about Bible translations. I mean, we all know that the King James is the ultimate, the only real translation. NIV is for people who don't really take eternity seriously, the message for snowflakes, and don't even mention the Passion Translation to me. But what if I told you that there is a person standing between you and the pure, unadulterated word of God every time you open your Bible? That's not Satan. It's the translator. And also maybe the committee that commissioned the translator. If that sounds super weird to you, don't worry. It sounded weird to me too. I mean, a translator just looks at an old manuscript and copies into another language the words that are there, right? Maybe. What if there's no English equivalent for that word? Or what if punctuation is missing? What then? And it begs the bigger question. How do we decide which translations are most trustworthy? We'll get into all that. But first, I want to introduce my friend, Luann Riley. Luann grew up in Alabama but got to Texas with her husband Justin as fast as she could. She left her ladder climbing gig in corporate America for a full-time job in ministry seven years ago. And she's the former discipleship director of a large Houston area church. She's currently pursuing a Master of Arts in Theology while wrangling her twin boys. She has a passion for hoodie sweatshirts, non-dairy creamer, books that make her cry, and Alabama football. I want to introduce you to my friend Hannah. Hannah is currently a communications manager for an anti-child trafficking organization, and I happen to know she's a pretty fantastic wife and mom. Her family just moved back to the U.S. after doing missions in the U.K. for the past three years. She's an Enneagram 5, so naturally, she loves detective stories and TV. She has a degree in creative writing and has worked in church ministry or parachurch ministry for the past eight years. Hey there, stranger. Hey, it's been a while. It has. I'm ready. Let's do this. Good. What are we talking about today? So today we're talking about the worship practice of reading and proclaiming the word. Okay, I'm going to, we'll unpack that some more so that it makes sense. Um, And what resources will we be looking at? So today we just have a couple of articles, actually, that we are resourcing. So we'll make sure that we link to those, as well as a couple sermons and um, other resources that I think are helpful. Okay. All right, so... When we left off talking about worship practices, it's weird to say when we left off because obviously for us it's been a while since we've recorded, but for someone listening, they could have like listened to the last one like 
30 minutes ago and now listen to this one. So there's not necessarily any time lapse. But in talking about worship practices, I think the last one that we recorded was God Said Nap. Was that where we left off? Yeah, we talked about Sabbath. Yeah, as, as a worship, worship practice. practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is also a worship practice, too. And I know reading and proclaiming the Bible sounds like a really official topic title that they put on it at seminary. But basically, we're talking about how we understand the Bible when we read it and then how we communicate it. And this was in the class from your crazy professor. It was. And I happen to think that this is probably one of the strongest weeks um, because it introduced a topic I feel like when you say reading and understanding the Bible and communicating it, it's like a bit of a checkout for anyone who maybe has been reading and understanding the Bible for any amount of time. You're like, yeah, 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 I got that. But he did introduce a a new a new thing for me to think and process about um, in terms of bias. So we really talked a lot about our biases that we have ourselves as we approach the Bible and then biases that may show up in our translations of the Bible that would affect our understanding of the Bible. Okay, because when I hear that, what I think is evangelism. So this is like, I think about like you read it and then you go like proclaim it. Proclaiming it to me is like sharing Yes, sharing I, I do think God's there, story. I, I do think there's a strong tie to evangelism, which I think is. But an- this goes like way, way, way back to say, hold on, before we even get to talking about it, let's look at how you understand it and why you understand it that way. Yes, and how you, yeah, and how you arrived at what you understand about the Bible, right. how you got there, how you got mm-hmm. there. So, what kind of tools? I mean, did he introduce what was what was the reading for this class that he gave you? Well, one of the most helpful understandings of both theology and our approach to the Bible is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Oh, yeah. I feel like we should come up with a great nickname for that, but we should have already done it before now, probably like the West Quad. There probably is one. I don't know. Sure, there is. I think the Wesleyan quadrilateral is really helpful. And let me just explain a little bit about what the quadrilateral is. And so it's from John Wesley, and he came up with uh, a way of explaining theology that has four pieces. So there's scripture, which would be the Bible. There's reason, which is your critical thinking and the way that you process your thoughts about God and theology. There is experience, so that's how a person has experienced the things of faith or has experienced God or Jesus in their life. And then there is tradition, and so that is the way that your church or denominational tradition has shaped your theology. And all four of those affect a person's way that they understand God, and also it affects the way that they understand and approach the Bible. And in a way, the Wesleyan quadrilateral can just be a, I mean, is it, it, I know it was come up, Wesley came up with it, so it relates specifically to Christianity, but it's sort of just like a grid for, what is it, epistemology, just like how we process anything in life. Yeah, and I think it's helpful to think about the four pieces as, and and it really is. I I mean, I do think it is a Christianity thing um, because the Bible is such an important part of the quadrilateral. And Mm -hmm. the way that it helps me understand 
denominations, I think is important. Um, so for us, we are Protestants, um, and we are specifically evangelicals, uh, mm-hmm. me and you from our background. Um, and so a Protestant evangelical is going to hold the scripture part of the quadrilateral traditionally higher than the rest of the other pieces. Mm-hmm. For example, a Catholic or someone from Catholicism would hold the tradition piece higher. So what is handed down through rituals and creeds and prayers and church teaching is considered higher than the personal relationship with scripture. A charismatic influence is going to hold the experiential piece uh, higher, potentially. And then there are, you know, some denominations out there, which it's hard to call it a denomination, but let's just say Christian science, for example. They would hold reason maybe at a higher piece. And so when you look through the grid of the Westland Quadrilateral and you look at different denominations, you begin to understand, I think, why the approach to God or the Christian faith is different. And just to clarify, there are denominations like Church of Christ scientists and some crazy ones that include the name scientist in the name of that denomination. And that's not what we're talking about. Those people are crazy. They're like the ones that are like, no, you can't go to the doctor. You got to stay here and die because you're broken leg kid. Yeah, we're talking about what that the way that it would be communicated in seminary is we're talking about mainline denomination. Lateral helps us understand how our denomination approaches Christianity. And within that, because we are Protestant evangelicals, we would place a huge emphasis on scripture as the most authoritative source of knowledge. Yes. That is so correct. when we go into scripture, like which scripture would be my next question? Yeah. So that's what we talked about. And we talked about the politics of Bible translations, which... I have not known much about Bible translations. I've heard a few sermons here or there. And so this was my first real exploration of different translations, how they came to be about what they mean. And we read a really interesting article by Scott McKnight, who Mm -hmm. I am enjoying also in my evangelism class. Uh, He is a leading evangelical, but I believe that he has a bit of a... um, edge to his thinking, I guess is what I should say, in both uh, Bible translations and his evangelism. So he he makes the statement that the Bible you carry is a political act. So the translation of the Bible that you carry is considered the best translation by your denomination. And in that, there is a bit of just ambiguity and sort of tension that you hold with other denominations who would say that no their translation is the best and one of the things that we talked about in terms of approaching the bible is to understand also not only our biases the way that scripture reason experience and tradition affect our understanding of the bible but also how those things affect the people who translated your particular copy of the bible well Okay, that was a whole lot right there. I think that probably a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people choose Bibles based on what their um, denomination sanctions. I worked in a Christian bookstore for a long time, and there's like a bunch of people just come in. They're like, oh, this is pretty. Look how I can write in this one. Yeah. I think 
so I think that for a lot of Christians, maybe they wouldn't even realize that mm. there was a difference to Bible training. Like I have an ESV Bible because of the space, because of the layout of the actual Bible. Did I have any idea like, oh, well, ESV is hardcore complementarian? Nope. I just thought, well, look at this cloth binding. Well, I'm getting this one. No, because I have an ESV Bible because I was told um, in a sermon by a trusted Bible theologian that it was the most literal translation of the Bible. Hmm. Now I know he is also a hardcore complementarian. So there's a bit of influence there that I didn't understand. Right. And so, you know, you have the NIV, which is considered a leading Bible translation of conservative evangelicals. I believe that the church that I'm part of is NIV or NLT. Both of those are conservative. Um, the article goes on to talk about how the um, the message was a bit of controversy when Eugene Peterson translated it. Um, oh, my Lord. I remember front lines of that controversy in our bookstore. People were like, well, I'm not. Oh, I don't even think that's real. I'm like, look, lady, I make $5 an hour. Just buy a Bible and get out of my hair. I mean, I've I've read and I've heard people say, like, it it discredits you as a preacher if you <laughs> teach from the message, which I think is a bit harsh um, because I think the message, I think Eugene Peterson is a is a fantastic theologian and that he makes the Bible poetic and accessible in a way without this, you know, diminishing what the word of God is trying to say. I think it's a very thoughtful translation. Yeah. But the problem is that's just a few degrees removed from someone who would say, oh, well, if you're reading it in English at all, that discredits you. Yes. And I think the understanding the translations, one of the things that is helpful for me is to, to know that, the Greek and Hebrew that the original Bible was translated in does not have equal English equivalents. Wait, you mean the Greek and Hebrew that, that it was written in? The Greek and Hebrew that it was written in do not have equivalent English words. Yeah. So there's some liberty that has to be taken. And then also new to me in the last few weeks is that the original uh, translations or the transcripts don't have punctuation. The If there's a question mark inserted, if there's a period inserted, it, it was up to the translators to decide where the sentence ended, where it started, whether this was a rhetorical question that might have been being asked in a letter or if this was a statement that was being So made. are you telling me that the Ten Commandments could have said, do not commit adultery? Yeah. Could have. Question mark? Which is where your reason, right? So this is where a translator's reason would have to enter into the translation and say, okay, based on my experience with God, based on what I can reason and critically think, based on what I've learned from my church tradition when I'm approaching this text to translate it for your Bible, what would make the most sense here? So not only do we have to wade through how... Using the Wesleyan quadrilateral as a tool to assess our own leanings, our own biases, but then realizing that the people who translated our Bible had their own grid through which they processed everything they were taking in. So the person translating my Bible back in the day, bending all of their reason and hopefully goodwill to the task, was also probably a person 
I don't know, that, like, didn't, that believed you could get sick from, like, somebody looking at you in a mean way. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, science, all of these, they believed some kooky stuff back then. And I'm saying they back then really loosely because this was so long ago, people. Well, so I think there's a real helpful resource that kind of gets into some of this that Ben Stewart, um, we can link to that also when he preaches about Bible translations. And I think one of the most helpful things that he talks about that I'm also learning is there is a reason that there are continued new editions of Bibles being put out that there are theologians and translators today who continue to use original transcripts and use all of these things to produce different um, versions of the Bible. And he talks about how the Bible's put together and how we and why we can trust it. I think the reason that this topic comes up in terms of the worship practice of reading and proclaiming the Bible is because if you are reading the Bible to understand it, to then communicate it with to other people, there is some of this that you need to put into practice, which Ben Mm -hmm. suggests that if you're examining a text, read it in multiple versions. He recently posted this on Instagram when he posted a picture of his various translations that he is referencing when he is studying a particular passage or book. And so it's helpful then to visit certain translations and to see what the differences are in the text and to then apply your Wesleyan quadrilateral to your understanding of the text. One of the examples that we talked about in our class that I think was really helpful to understand to kind of give teeth to an example here is my professor talked about a 1996 version of the NLT Um, in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew chapter five. There is a verse where Jesus says, if you look at the ESV, which I have right here, it says you have heard it before. And then he goes on to say, you know, hate your enemies, love your enemies he goes into sort of the Beatitudes and the, mm-hmm. and the different things that you can find in the Sermon on the Mount. The NLT version that came out in 1996 actually changed that verse to say, you have heard it said before in the law of Moses. And when those translators were questioned about why that was there, the translators said, well, it didn't make sense to say you have heard it before because people need to know where the Jewish people would have heard it before. So we inserted the law of Moses. Gasp. However, the law of Moses was not in the original text. And I think the reason that that became kind of an issue in the theological community is because it was kind of holding the law of Moses, so so the Old Testament intention with the New Testament in a way that the Greek translation or the original text did not. And so I believe it's corrected that there are new living translations out there where that has been taken out. But that is just, that, that, that is an example of, does it change who Jesus is? No. Is it a hot, like, accurate to what the original text said? No. Does it feel like a minor sort of example? Yes. 
But I think if you are a person like me who is in seminary to learn to be a preacher, a better preacher or a better communicator of God's word, that it's helpful for me to understand if I'm looking at multiple texts and multiple commentaries, like as I wade through, how am I going to communicate this passage? It's helpful for me to understand how it came to be and what the context is. So there are two things that really stand out to me from all of that. Um, so wait a minute. R- remind me of the four. What are the four in the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Scripture, tradition, experience, and logic? Reason, reason but yes, logic. Mm-hmm. Um, where would cultural norms fit into the Wesleyan quadrilateral? I I feel like an experience? I don't know. Uh, because I feel like that has a huge influence and when I even think about um some of the conversations that we've had about the translations um pronouns specifically yeah which we're gonna so, get well of course she means a man okay so I'll save that if we're gonna get there but the other thing that I notice is um the the impulse to say oh well in this but this the bible's not explaining this clearly i i need to jump in i need to help out a little bit here because it didn't say the law of moses that's probably maybe god dropped the ball there and i don't know that that's their thought process but i feel like that is the impulse that feels like sort of this sense of like i gotta i gotta keep this thing together mm. we gotta keep the wheels on this machine here because if they if they leave any gaps could expose us to some criticism Or even just thinking, I'm just going to clear it up for him. I'm just going to. And that really, I don't like that at all. I don't want anyone else doing that work for me. And then, because if you add into the Wesleyan quadrilateral, or if you just even take into account cultural norms and the pressures of cultural, like in the Protestant evangelical culture, the Bible is sacred. It is. To question the Bible is a is like just go ahead and set yourself outside of the city walls. Just don't ever expect to be spoken to again or respected in your town or culture. And so knowing that those pressures exist and yet inside the Bible there are issues like this where people are like, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna help it out a little bit, just put that in there. If I'm expected to absolute to never question anything, then nobody better be tinkering with it like that. That's what I feel. Yeah, I'm going to just be a little salty here about the Protestant evangelical quadrilateral. It almost like idolizes the Bible in a For way sure. and we put our faith in scripture um and our knowledge and understanding of scripture I believe is a bit um borders on idolatry. Um For sure. And I don't think that that's helpful. And I think that this, you know, this class has helped me see that in a way. I believe seminary is helping me see that in a way, which makes me hopeful for uh, those people coming through seminary now who will be church leaders or continue to be church leaders in their day to help hold the Bible in the in the right place. Um, And I think that you're right about the trying to relieve the tension because the articles that we're going to link to talk about that. They talk about how there is tension in the Bible. There is ambiguity Mm -hmm. in the Bible. And if a translation is trying to correct those things, 
then that is where the inaccuracy comes in. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, several examples that it cites in these articles of ambiguity trying to be sort of fleshed out and Mm -hmm. and understood. And I was listening to an interview last night for another class, and one of the leading theologians in it made the statement, the Bible says unambiguously this certain thing. And to me, I think that is that is a red flag, because if there is anything that we can say about the Bible is that there, there is some ambiguity in it and there is some tension in it. And there is this idea that you have to understand a lot of context, I think, to where the Bible was written, a lot of cultural norms of Jesus's mm-hmm. day. Yeah. I mean, even the parables, the illustrations, the agriculture, it's all foreign to us right. as Christians in this century in America, there's things that don't translate exactly. And so those things have to be held in tension when we're reading the Bible. Yeah. Um, and one thing that, that I realize is that I feel like the Bible and the person of Jesus are smushed into one Hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Like, that scripture has a place in the quadrilateral, not Jesus? Is that because we say, oh, well, the only way that we know Jesus is through scripture. But when we're talking about scripture, it's like this specific compendium that certain pieces were rejected from, certain pieces were adapted. And there there were generations of Christians who did not have the Bible that we have today generations and yet they knew the living god the living god amen like they're and so what 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 does it say that we're like nope sorry you can't know god if you don't know the bible nope sorry you don't understand the person of jesus Mm -hmm. if you don't fully know the bible now do i i think the right tension to hold is that god gave us the word of god in order to facilitate our relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not outside of our experience with him. Mm-hmm. I think about um, just how many people, particularly of, of Muslim descent, who come to know Jesus because he appears to them right. in dreams and visions. Right. They've never touched the Bible, but yet they experience God and Jesus. Mm -hmm. And And this is not like a a one-time, one person heard about this experience. Like you and I, independently of each other, like we have, Jason in all the stuff that he did and all the traveling, met people. He met people who used to be members of like ISIS, who had radical, crazy encounters with God. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like it's just like a one-off, like, oh, well, maybe one time that happened. No, people, like... Jesus calls people to himself without the use of the Bible sometimes. Yes. And so I think that if you come back to the quadrilateral, back to Wesley's work during the awakenings and the enlightenment period, I, I think he really had his finger on trying to balance what a lot of church history had looked like and placing different importances on different things and begin, beginning to try to wade through that and say, all four of these affect our understanding of God, and all four of these affect our understanding of the Bible. 
I think like a little bit of what was coming to light for you in this class was some things that made the authenticity or supremacy of the Bible a little bit shaky or maybe just added some nuance. But what it brings me to is like, well, what does that change for me though? As a Christian, like I'm, I'm not a preacher. How does that change my understanding of anything? Does it? Yeah. So I've actually thought a lot about this um, because I think part of my seminary journey continues to be, how do I apply this to my life? How does this affect my ability to follow Jesus and my understanding of what it means to be a Christian and how that plays out in my life? And I think one thing that's helpful for me is when you think about theology, and there's quite a few different definitions of the word theology out there, but one of the definitions that I heard in my class recently was from St. Anselm of Canterbury back in the, I don't know, 10th century. He uh, defined theology as faith-seeking understanding. And part of our journey as Christians is, and our faith, is to seek understanding about what we believe. And I have come pretty concretely to believe that people's belief system is what affects the way that they live. And so our understanding of what we believe then plays out in the practical parts of our life. And I think that has two ways that that affects Christianity and my ability to follow Jesus. So I think that it affects um, when you seek to understand the Bible, it's what you believe about God that I think impacts your the way that you live out the Christian life. And it's interesting because Tozer, who, A.W. Tozer, who is a, a, a leading theologian as well, who I've read so much of, he says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And on the converse of that, C.S. Lewis says that it's not what we think of God, but it's understanding what God thinks of us that changes the way that we view our Christian life. And both of those things are influenced about our understanding of the Bible. And so I think as you develop your belief system and your theology and how your faith plays out, it affects the way that you practically carry out your Christian life. It affects where you believe that God is calling you to love people. And I think it comes back to the great commandment because we love our neighbors best. I believe when we are following Jesus in a way that is meaningful and intentional. And so if I am reading the Bible and understanding it, and I'm in a conversation with my neighbor who may read and understand the Bible a different way, or who may have no grid for understanding the Bible, how much more effective can I love that person and engage in conversation with them when I hold intention that my beliefs might be different than theirs, or that my belief system is different? And if I have any grid to understanding how my Catholic neighbor views scripture or Jesus or the Bible, then I am able in that much more way to engage in conversation with them. I don't like that quote by St. Anselm. I disagree with that. I don't think that, I think that people have theology even when they don't reason it out. 
I think that people who don't believe in God necessarily or who are agnostics have a theology. I think that's a pretty narrow description of what theology is. And I think what this underscores to me is that, all right, so I've told you the story before, I'll tell you again. But when I was um, a kid in Sunday school, my Sunday school teacher, who was also my father, I guess he was giving us tools for <laughs> apologetics and he drew a circle on the chalkboard and um, said, invited us each to come up and color in the section of that circle that we felt represented our personal knowledge. If the whole circle represented all of the knowledge in the universe, everything that could ever be known, everything that anyone had experienced, then what would what would our piece of that be in our lifetime? How much of that would we know and understand? And so we each took turns going up and coloring a little spot in. And I remember someone who went ahead of me coloring in what I felt was a pretty sizable circle for who that person was. I was like, yeah, doubt it, bro. Um, you know, and I went up and put like a speck in that big circle. And I think the takeaway that, that he had intended was if you're ever talking to someone, this is a tool you can use to discover whether or not there's any point in even continuing a conversation with someone. Because if they color in the whole circle, just be like, have a great day. And you don't waste your time anymore. Um, and I feel like what this whole discussion on bias and Bible translation reveals is that there are a lot of people in, a lot of Christians, who want to color in a real big part of that circle. And especially especially when it comes to scripture, what scripture means, how it came to us, what we're supposed to do with it. They're coloring that whole circle in. And my takeaway is that actually it shouldn't be colored in all the way. And we need to live with that. And that we are healthier and the world is a better place when we don't insist that we have the full picture, that we've got it all, that it's all under control. I can engage in a conversation with a person when I don't believe that I have the circle all filled in. Right. And this sort of idea that there's other faith traditions out there who believe other things about scripture and there's interpretations and there's ambiguity and there's tension and there's all these things that I need to say, honestly, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. Then I can have a evangelical conversation with a person that doesn't involve me saying, I've got it all figured out. This is the way it is. It's so black and white. There's no room for your beliefs. Like there's no room right. for intelligent discourse around your, around your beliefs. So I, I think that we're saying the same thing essentially is that you try to understand the best you can. You seek to understand. And I think you're right that we have to hold our circles and our beliefs in this larger, bigger picture of our faith journey. But a, a byproduct of that for me is a real lessening of the amount of trust that I have for some of these <laughs> people that we've talked about who make statements like one of the one thing that's not ambiguous at all about the Bible is it's just making me be like, I don't know, you guys, I feel like I feel like you're not all totally trustworthy. They're just power hungry. Yeah. I, I mean, it comes back to like, where are you putting your trust? Like, who are you putting your trust in? And we're all flawed. 
all of our theologians are flawed. All of our pastors are flawed. Like everyone has their own set of quadrilateral that they're carrying around with them. And they also have their own set of sin that they're carrying around with them. And so your trust can't be in the Bible and it can't be in a theologian and it can't be in a preacher and it can't be in all these people. It has to be in the person of Jesus and your relationship with him and do some these things maybe influence what you think along the way maybe but your trust ultimately always has to come back to your faith in Jesus and God and one thing that we've been talking about in our evangelism class that I feel like is so true and is certainly true about my story is that people don't necessarily care what the Bible has to say when they don't know God and they don't trust in Jesus like your passion for the Bible or understanding God's word only comes after you have found an active living faith in yeah. Jesus and in God. What we're talking about here matters to people who already have a faith in Jesus, who have a love for him, therefore want to understand and love his word. Does not mm-hmm. matter to our neighbor who has zero faith in God or Jesus. One thing that I that I like um, is you pointed out, I don't know who said it, but the fact that there are new translations of the Bible still coming out and they're not pointless. They're coming out because people are like, well, actually, I don't think that was quite right. I'm going to try and really get this thing like without bias. The fact that that we're still striving for that, I kind of like that. Me too. Um, because it also makes me feel like, I mean, you know, King James Bible, people, I'm sure they're like burned the NIV when it came out in heaps, just like it was a Beatles record. But the King James, the King James Bible had some pretty shady stuff happening in its inception for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, if you go back and look at the politics of church history and the monarchy and King James and the whole way that went down, it absolutely could be the definition of a political translation of the Bible. Now, is everything in there? off no but there are some things that could be improved upon which is what people have tried to do over the Mm -hmm. years one thing that i've learned about recently in seminary is there is a version called the ceb which is the common english bible what's unique about it um, which has come out in the last few years is that it is the largest cross-denominational translation project. So generally, when a version of the Bible is translated, it is done by translators within a particular denomination. And so, you mean like Baptists yes. are like, "Hey, we're going to hire some researchers the C- and they're going to make I a think, Baptist Bible." Yeah, actually, my she reads Truth Bible is that. It is a oh CHSB. It is a Southern Baptist Convention issued. denominational translation the CEB which is where we started so it is a cross-denominational translation project so Baptist Catholic Evangelical Methodist other faith traditions had a joint you must be a pretty terrible Baptist if you're willing to work with other denominations on a Bible yes you must be uh also might be a bad Catholic if you're willing to work on it um And so it says that no single translation, despite the breadth of this committee's reach, because my understanding is there was like 70-something translators who worked on this Bible, is likely to please all. But this sincere and diligent effort goes far towards the creation of a plain English version that can be read and understood by a wide range of ages, educational backgrounds, and aptitudes. And it is seeking to be a, this says, a balanced, rigorous, 
accuracy and translation of the ancient text with an equally passionate commitment to clarity of expression in English. So I just got one. Um, I actually bought the version that has books in it that the Protestant evangelicals don't use or are not in our canon. Um, like the book of Susanna and stuff? Yeah, like Maccabees yeah. and, yeah. you know, uh, the Apocrypha and yeah. all these kind of things because I'm interested in knowing what they say um, and trying to hold those intention and just kind of figure out what I think about it. Um, but there's versions out there that don't include that. There's versions out there that include. So I can't tell you about my experience with it yet because I just purchased one, but I am going to wade into it and see what I think. So what somebody is supposed to do in response to this knowledge? Do you have any sort of action step? I think the action step to this is to use different multiple translations when you are sitting down to study scripture, which the world of technology has made that incredibly easy for us. Like you don't have to lug around like 50 different Bible mm-hmm. translations. Actually, the Bible app, uh, the Holy Bible app by version just has on the top where you can click through. So does, you know, Bible Gateway and things like that on the computer. And so one of the things I've started doing is when I'm working in my devotional or I'm studying scripture or reading scripture or it comes up on Sunday morning, I just quickly click through maybe five translations at the top and just sort of read through those um, and see what the differences are. All right, Luann. Do we have a scripture for today? We do. So our scripture for today is 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. And I'm going to read first from the ESV. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And now I'm going to read it in 2 Timothy. Read 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 in the Common English Bible, which says, Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. Well, thanks for listening today. We hope that you found this topic educational and interesting, and we'd love to hear from you. Head on over to our Instagram, at Seminary Stowaways, to continue the conversation on Bible translations. Or, if you're up for it, uh, give us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear it. That's all for today. Until next time.